and Cedar kind of showed me like, no, you should throw like some things you think, like you should throw those away and just document things as they happen. And also just try to have as much fun doing it. Cause like, yeah, filmmaking is a lot of work, but like you also just have to have fun making films and make fun films. Cause that's what people want. That's filmmaker, photographer, and climber Samuel Crossley. And this is the Wilder Mind Podcast. Hear the call in the distance. It's a long road worth your while. Hey, hey, yeah, hello, hi, everyone. I am so stoked to be back in your podcast feed with episode two of the Wilder Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for coming back and spending time with us. The feedback for the first episode has been overwhelmingly positive. Another quick heads up, the sound quality is generally better this time around, and I've edited out as much of the background noise as I could, but some of it just won't go away. So let me share a bit about that. Something that is very unique about the podcast is that I don't record in a studio. I actually travel to the guests, no matter where they might be, jump into their craft with them for a day, and then we record. This experience provides a familiarity with one another and creates a pretty great space for conversation. The problem, of course, is that we tend to pick up some background noise as recording spaces are not always ideal. In this particular episode, Samuel was kind enough to allow us to record in his sprinter van that is built out for what is commonly referred to as van life. We were parked at Camp 4 in Yosemite Valley. For the most part, the sound is pretty damn solid. But there were several instances where the tour bus engines droned on a bit, we got some people wandering around and some kids screaming something, I don't know what. But I've removed the low-end frequency so it doesn't rattle your speakers and your brain. Eh, but some of the sound artifacts, they still exist. <laughs> and just like last episode, it's all part of the experience. So... Take a seat in a super comfortable sprinter van just steps away from the same stone and valley meadows that have captivated the minds of climbers, photographers, filmmakers, and nature lovers alike. Breathe in that fresh, crisp Yosemite air and enjoy the show. Now, let's do the damn thing. Sam, thank you for taking the time, truly, um, to be a guest on the Wilder Mind podcast. And thank you for allowing us to use Samuel Crossley Media Headquarters here in Yosemite Valley in the Sprinter. It's, and it's been a good day hanging out with you and Jordan Cannon and um, getting worked by your warm-up boulders. So, <laughs> Well, I got worked as well. Yeah, I don't know. You made them up Jordan's a, a way better boulder than I am. And, you know, I tried. That's it, all I can say. He made it to the top more than I did. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sam, you have just gotten off the free solo tour. Is that correct? Um, yeah, the, the film free solo is coming out and... So I, I was a cameraman on that, and I was a, the assistant to Jimmy Chin for the photo assignment. Um, and so I've had the opportunity to both watch the film as a filmmaker as it premieres, but also I ended up shooting a lot of photographs um, for the premieres. And so I've been getting to kind of tour with all the, all the film screenings across America. So if you haven't heard by now, Free Solo is sweeping the nation, breaking box office records, and most recently being nominated for the Best Documentary Feature in the 91st Academy Awards and an Oscar nomination for Documentary Feature. So, how does an opportunity to work on such a film come about? Here's Samuel to tell us more. The reason I kind of got in on that project was because of Alex Honnold. 
I'd worked with him and became friends with him, and, and so I'd, I'd known him for about five years prior to that job. And I'd worked with him on Sufferfest 1, Sufferfest 2, and Real Rock Films and whatnot, and um, Jimmy asked Alex, I actually don't know exactly how it happened, but Jimmy needed a photo assistant and someone that could also work on the film. And they needed to know Alex. And so Alex put my name in, um, and so Jimmy reached out to me, um, he sent me an email, and then we jumped on a call, and this was at the very end of film school. It was about two weeks, or no, three weeks before I graduated. Wow. And so I was right in the middle of finals, and he was like, hey, like, Alex, you, like, highly recommends you, and, like, we've got this big, you know, gig that I hear that you can be really helpful for, because we need someone to, you know, deal with all the media and be my photo assistant, but also someone that, like, knows Alex and can shoot. And so, of course, I'm like, yes, I will take this job. <laughs> but the catch was that it was, like, in two weeks. And so it cut into the last week when all of my final projects were due. And, like, and I, yeah. And so I talked to my professors at SF State, and I was like, here's what's going on. I just got contacted by the Jimmy Chin <laughs> of National Geographic. That's insane. I don't know why, <laughs> but he did, and he wants me to help him. Um, and so they were—they—they uh, they totally understood. They got it. They're like, "You've worked hard throughout, you know, college, and like we have a personal relationship with you." Like all the professors at SF State were super amazing, and so it's a testament to the professors there that they really wanted the students to achieve. Or like I asked, like, "Can I, you know, do all of my work prior?" Where, like, when I get back, can I finish the work before grades are submitted? And so, like, there's this kind of, like, mix of, of responses from different classes. And I made it work. And all wow. the professors made it work. And I was able to take the job and work on it for a month and then also graduate. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Um, <laughs> That's a lot to do in a month's time. And Jimmy, of course, took me under his wing. And, like, sh he, he, you know, Jimmy has a lot on his plate. Yeah. And so to, like, hire someone new on a project of that scale that he hadn't worked on. Um, I think, you know, again, I'm just extremely lucky. Like, did I deserve that position? Who's like, I don't really think so, but I, I sure did work my ass off when he gave me that opportunity. And like, you know, we went on different missions where like I would, I would have an F-stop bag full of expensive cinema camera equipment and we would go free solo up like the gun sight of in between middle and lower cathedral. He's like, perfect, you got your free soloing badge. And I'm like, this is like easy, like five, four free soloing. Still, but, but when you have a backpack <laughs> full of like, you know, 50 grand in your backpack and you're like, if I slip, like, and you're in a pro shoes too. So I don't know, but he kept on giving me badges and stuff. And then like, he forgot his headlamp one night and I, and he was, he always wears hats and has an iPhone. So I'm like, Oh, we'll just turn your hat around put your iPhone upside down and backwards and have the, have, have the light on. And That's he's genius. like, oh my gosh, oh my dude, <laughs> Sam with the millennial pro tip. <laughs> the millennial pro tip. <laughs> and so like I got on his good side and like what, what's even more impressive <clears throat> um, was that I did, I did make some mistakes and like he was like, I should fire you, but I can tell that you're a good guy and like you're doing this for all the right reasons and you're in it for the long run. And, like, I'm willing to, like, you know, let it slide. Wow. And that is amazing. Yeah. Like, I should have been fired. And he said that. And he's, like, he's giving me the second chance. And so. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. 
I don't want to say what I did. Yeah, you don't need to. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was. It wasn't super bad, but it was. You know, it was worth firing someone over and just you know, because that position that I was in, the data wrangler, all the films footage going through me, you know, that position could have been filled by someone else. Um, you had all these other skills that you provided. But that that's were, the thing. I had yeah. many hats on that project. I was a PA. I was a camera guy. I, <laughs> I know how to make. Sa- I know how to make salad and cookies. <laughs> and I, you know, Excellent skill. <laughs> I was we get hungry doing his, this. I was good with his daughter and his son. So like, there's like, there's a lot of you know, variables to why he kept me on the project. But ultimately, he kept me on the project, which you know. Thank you, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and if you're listening to this, Jimmy, thank you for listening to this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, why you should be going back to work? What do yeah. you Don't listen to what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then, so you're up there, and you're free soloing, and you're you're rigging, um, and you, are you hanging from these lines, getting these shots? Um, yeah. So at the beginning of the project, I was very much just kind of not on the wall a lot um, until I I got. I got recognized that I was able to do it because with a project like that, I mean, of course, safety is paramount. Absolutely. And so to have like, you know, the youngest person on the set um, and the person with, you know, arguably the least experience on a, on a wall, like that's just a risk analysis, like easy answer. Like don't have him on the wall unless he needs to be on the wall. Um, and so I forget exactly when the first time I was on the wall was, but they're in, you know, they liked the footage. I got good stuff and I was safe and I was, very efficient as well and so um they 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 kind of trusted me to to do those those tasks on the wall and um again a little bit of magic and luck when it came to the free solo mikey schaefer the dp of the film um for all the climbing footage he unfortunately got hurt prior and so he couldn't be on the wall and so he managed the long lens from the ground and so I got to, you know, kind of not take his place, but I was up there instead of Mikey. Wow. Um, which was a huge opportunity. And so I was on top of the enduro corner as Alex soloed up it, um, which is re- like one of the only cruxes that he did with an actual camera person because all the other cruxes were remote. And so Jimmy is on the left side of the enduro corner and I'm on top as he kind of climbs up and then wraps around the arete. And, um, Amazing. Yeah, it was pretty pretty phenomenal to be in that position in history, really. Absolutely. And a pivotal position in yeah, history. Yeah. Now it's you know my climbing career is all downhill. From <laughs> yeah. Here, yeah. So this is where we get into the fall of Samuel Cross. Yeah, it's the fall. Like once you shoot Alex Honnold free soloing, it's all downhill. You know? <laughs> like what can you do to top that? You know? So I have to ask. Shoot someone down climbing it upside down solo, like. <laughs> like. Spider-Man face going first. down, face yeah. first going down. <laughs> Stomach out. <laughs> so wait, I have to ask, what is that like watching this person you've known for five, six, seven years at this point? Because you're a couple years into the, the, the project. Free soloing up what no one had ever done before, which no one thought possible. And you you have to be silent, not cause any rocks to fall keep the camera steady through one of the major cruxes. What does that feel like internally for you as a filmmaker? How do you separate catching the story from your friend potentially dying? Well, in the moment, <clears throat> I'm not really thinking about anything other than executing as a filmmaker. 
Um, because in that moment, like, you know, if the shot goes out of focus, like, you just shot Alex Honnold free selling a cap out of focus. Like, yeah. that's, you don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, I am, when I was in that position filming, like, I was full on just operating the camera, just execution mode. All right. I need to jump into your ear holes for just a second here. First, if you've not seen Free Solo, do that. Second, head on over to wildermindpodcast.com, click on Samuel's episode, and find a link in the show notes titled, What If He Falls? It's a 10-minute, 11-second New York Times piece that shows some great behind-the-scenes footage and is told by the filmmakers themselves, Elizabeth Chai Bossarelli and Jimmy Chen. Check it out. But after you finish this podcast, of course. But, you know... All of the two years leading up to that moment were pretty dicey, like ups and downs. Ultimately, like, you know, I, I've shot Alex free selling a lot. And so it's not so much that I'm desensitized, but it's more that I'm used to it. And maybe it is that I'm desensitized, but it's more that I, I trust him a lot more because I know exactly what he's doing. Um, and there's a, there's a quote by Tommy in the film that's like, if you know exactly what he's doing, you're scared. And I kind of, I actually didn't really feel like that for, for my particular position because I knew that Alex wouldn't do it unless he knew he was able to do it. And that's the whole game of free soloing. Absolutely. It's like, if he had a doubt in his mind, he wouldn't do it. And I fully trusted him. And yeah, there were some like visualizations of what would happen if I was shooting and, you know, he fell through the frame as, as Jimmy puts it and you know, you have to think about that stuff. And like, you know, I thought of like, if he falls, like, what do I do? Do I keep the camera framed on, or do I follow him? Like that's, that's like some messed up sh stuff to have to even think about. Or like, Absolutely do I, it is. Do I, you know, Jimmy was in view. So do I, you know, do I focus on Jimmy and like, just keep rolling? And I was like, I don't want to do any of those things. I want to sit there and like cry. Yeah. But I, like, heavy, man. but as a filmmaker and like, as a friend, it's just hard to, hard to figure all that stuff out. And so there were, you know, there were moments where like a typical 2am, you know, wake up call in El Portal to drive in and start hiking up and then wrap in on El Cap. Like there were times where you're just like kind of tired. And so I remember this moment I had, I had my iPod on shuffle. Um, and Josh Groban, like you raised me up, came on like super cheese ball song, <laughs> but like I like I like listening to the iPod on shuffle because like each music provides like way different feelings. Absolutely. And so it's like I think that mixes well with my ADD. I think it's like, anyways. So I'm I'm listening to Josh Groban, you raised me up, and like there's a line in there where it's like you raised me up so I can stand on mountains. And I thought of Alex, and like I just started crying. Oh, no. I was like, "Oh my god! Like this is the moment! Like I got, I gotta let it out!" I just like I'm like you know going to film Alex. Like I forget exactly what I was filming him that day, but like you know it just hits you when you don't expect it because like you can rationalize it and like logically work your way through it, which is you know needed and great. But yeah. also like there is an emotional side to what I did, and I experienced the highs and the lows. You know. Oh, I believe that. Even watching it. Up, leading up to this interview and, and knowing I was going to talk to you and knowing it would come up I was watching it with that in mind thinking what is everyone who is filming this going through I, yeah I was surprised by how how well everyone did on the wall that day and also he did he did an attempt um I think in November of the previous year and you know I was on a long lens on top of um lower cathedral 
Oh, across from. And like watching yeah. it from the long lens is like just as bad. Like you're what it doesn't matter where you are. Like being on the wall was great, but also like it was all, it was no different than being on the long lens. Like I'm wow. just as invested in watching Alex solo. Absolutely. And so anyone that day that was watching him, I think felt similarly to how I was feeling. You oh, know, I believe that. Outside of when I was shooting. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a nice full circle here for us because I'm I'm curious while you're all filming this in the two years that this kind of took shape did any of you imagine the giant just storm and surge of energy that's around it now i mean it's full hollywood at this point did did you think that would come or was it going to be this this amazing film that got passed around the climate community um i always thought that that i mean well i didn't always think it was pretty pretty like basic knowledge that alex is bigger than the climbing community which um the easiest way to tell is just like you know he's recognized by non-climbers yeah um and so his his story is uh is is such a great story first off but then also like well oh man it's so it's such a it's such a complicated thing to talk about like yeah i definitely saw that this film would be bigger than the climbing community just because alex and this goal is bigger than the climbing community it really speaks volumes to human achievement. Yes, it does. And um, I didn't know it would get this big, where it would like break box office records. Like no one knows that. Like, like you can hope for that, but you know, to actually see it happen, like everyone's surprised and very happy. What's oh, huge? You know? <laughs> and it's like all this is a testament, I think, to you know, Chai and Jimmy and Evan Hayes and like all the people that have worked on this film to make it what it is. Like, there's so many people that have just works so hard yeah at such a high level i'm sitting with one of them years. right now <laughs> and it's just like each you know it's really just like that's uh, I, I don't know how to explain it <laughs> i think it was for me it was really neat because i'm sitting in the theater next to a couple that did not know what they were watching and they knew they were going to see a documentary that was doing really well um and they still were blown away by everything and I could hear them whispering back and forth, and, and the, the oh, it was an Oz from them, but they were captivated by the story. And I, for a lot of us who were just going to go watch it, we weren't sure, is this going to be a strict climbing thing? Are they just going to lead in and say, here was the goal, and he climbs? Or was there going to be something that was this bigger story? Like you said, you know, he's bigger than the climbing community, and the story is bigger than the climbing community. And the story came through uh, in, with flying colors. Yeah. And so a testament to everybody who put two years of their life into this thing mm -hmm. um, that th really made it what it is. Yeah. And Chai, I mean, I've, I've listened to a lot of question and answer sessions after the films with the filmmaker, like Chai and, and Jimmy. And Chai, Chai, Chai sums it up pretty well where, you know, they wanted to make a profile piece on Alex because, in, in, in her words, as she puts it, is Alex found it more scary to ask someone to climb with him rather than just go climbing alone without a rope and for her she saw that as some like 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 a very meaningful because it is it's extremely meaningful and anyone can agree to that yes and like can relate to it and so she it's like she's brilliant and she she knows exactly like which themes are like important and how to tell them in a film as the documentary unfolds so does a new relationship enter sonny mccandless but wait wait 
I think I'd be remiss if I didn't include some sort of really beautiful quote about love. Ugh, yeah. I'm just going to be remiss. Check out the show notes to be reminded of the time that Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and Sting gave us one of the cheesiest love ballads of all time. Okay, back to it. And yeah. all of a sudden, Sonny McCandless shows up, and it's now a love story, and Sonny <laughs> is one of the most incredible like characters in really any film, because she challenges Alex, and you see that transformation. You know, he, he falls in love, and she's able to do that because she is extremely emotionally intelligent and able to push on Alex because she has self-respect. Exactly right. And like, I'm saying that because Chai has said that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't want to steal her words, but like, you know, it's like, that's, that's what sums up what makes the film so relatable and so much bigger than the climbing community is like, there's a love story, you know, watching Alex and Sonny's relationship evolve. Um, it also paralleled my life where like I started falling in love with Brian and I was filming with Alex and Sonny so much that, you know, Sonny actually became a really good mentor and really a friend. And like, I would, you know, confide in her with these like things that I was thinking about with Brian. And, you know, like when I wanted to tell Brian that I loved him, like I told Sonny, Sonny was the only person that knew that I loved Brian. And like, I didn't know, whether to tell him or when to tell him or like if I should like all these things it's huge (laughs) yeah it's huge and she was like well if you are like getting to the point where you want to get it off your chest like you should you should say like this is something I want to say and it doesn't really matter like how like if you feel the same way I just want to say that I love you and I was like Sonny you're fucking incredible like (laughs) 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 yeah that's and I that's so beautiful Everybody became such a family on this. How would you not surrounding this, this epic, epic film? That's amazing. I love that story. Yeah. So Sonny is like, you know, she's the magic of the film. And I'm not going to give any teasers away, but like, think of the ending of the film without Sonny after you've seen it. Yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it ended perfectly again. You cannot write that sort of thing. Go watch Free Solo. Yeah. (laughs) So what exactly does one do after filming Free Solo? Here's Samuel to tell us more. You know, what I I did before Free Solo, and I'm taking what I learned from Free Solo and trying to make myself better at what I do. Um, And that's really the simple answer. Like, I don't have a next project that I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to now document Adam Andra free soloing the Trango Towers. Like, no, like, like, I have no idea what I'm going to do next, but I'm going to keep doing what I do and try to get better at it. I'm happy to kind of, like, take a step back now, and now I'm in in Yosemite, and I'm just here for a little bit to shoot Jordan, and I was going to shoot Brad, but unfortunately Brad sprained his ankle, so. Brad Gobright. Yeah, Brad Gobright. And so now I'm just here just hanging out in between projects. That's awesome. So that kind of gets back more to the core of what you wanted to do with your career behind the camera. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Yosemite, like, I grew up in the Bay Area, so Yosemite has always been a destination that I go to just pretty much always during the season I hit up Yosemite, either in the spring or the fall, um, at least once. If not, I make multiple trips out here. So, I mean, that's what I'm doing now. It's now the fall season, and this is my first time in Yosemite for the season. Um, Well, actually, that's not true. I shot some stuff here earlier, but I didn't count that because I didn't climb at all. It's kind of unbelievable to like come to Yosemite and not climb. Yeah, I was unimpressed with myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I wasn't able to climb because I was shooting Alex Honnold for CBS doing this news news thing where he wrote a letter to himself as if he was like a young kid. And so part of that was they needed someone to film him on the wall. And originally they had reached out to someone named Mikey Schaefer, who was the DP for the free solo film on the wall. Um, but he unfortunately couldn't take it. So he was like, oh, you should have Sam shoot. And uh, they gave me a call and I was like, super stoked because it's CBS. And so yeah. I, I took the job and... And so that's why I was here. I was shooting Alex all day. And because I was following him for the tour, then he had to go the next day to L.A., so I went with him. Um, and I ended up not climbing when I was here. That's rough. I was on the wall, but not climbing. So the letter is actually part of a larger project with CBS that's Emmy-nominated. And so the idea is actually really cool to have these people that are really good at their craft write a letter to their younger self. It makes a lot of sense for someone that's you know kind of achieved their goals in life because um, that kind of perspective just like it allows the person to write what they think they would want themselves to know which no one else can really ask them yeah that's like true. if you're really good at doing your job as an interviewer you still can't really find the right questions or like bring up the right events in someone's life unless you know about them and so for alex to write this letter about himself you know he's touching on things that maybe other people haven't touched on and also it's from his mind and from his heart. And so all of it's very true. Um, and so it, it kind of just humanizes him in a way that I don't think a lot of media tends to do. Because a lot of media is focused on like the death-defying act and all that Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Now it's Samuel's turn to take a bit of retrospection. I wanted to go back in his history and see how this life of filmmaking, photography, and climbing all came to be. Yeah, so <clears throat> to kind of answer that question, I, I start with kind of dividing climbing and, and photography into two separate entities. And I got into photography when, when I was very young. Um, whenever we went on trips as a family, each of my brothers and I, I have two older brothers, we'd all get a disposable camera to document the trip. And I remember from a young age that my, my, my brothers and my mom and dad would always say that my photos were the best. And, like, I'm the youngest child, so I never do anything the best. Oh, it's always sure. my older brothers <laughs> that are the best. So I was like, oh, this is something that I'm good at. And then, luckily, my dad bought a big black DSLR, like those big cameras, when I was in fourth grade. And um, he taught me how to use it, but wouldn't let me use automatic. He taught me manual. And, like, if you're going to use the camera, you should know how to use it and, like, use it in manual. Wow. So from fourth grade, I liked photography. And then I also learned, you know, the technical side of it from my dad and started taking photos which forced me to understand light and like a lot of technical aspects. So then when I got to junior high and was taking photos for fun and, you know, I had electives, um, the technical side of the camera, I was very in tune with. So it allowed me to take kind of a good quality photo. Photos I took in junior high were not good, but like <laughs> at least they were exposed, you know, like stuff yeah. like that. And then, um, you know, when, in high school, I knew that I liked photography and I got into filmmaking and, um, I never really had a super uh, great academic um, kind of like future. Well, it's kind of hard to say it like that. Like, I felt like I was really good at photography and filmmaking compared to any specific academic um, discipline. And so when it came to applying to colleges, it just automatically made sense to apply to film school because that's kind of what I did. Um, and so then I went to film school and started making films. Um, and it wasn't until college that I found climbing. And so climbing became a very big part of my life because I played sports all the way up and through high school. And then when I got to college, I wanted to stay fit somehow. 
So I tried lifting weights. I was like, well, this is boring and way too repetitious. There's like, it's so monotonous. There's just nothing to yeah, it really. Yeah, lift it up, set it down. I mean, not to bash people that do that. Like, that's great power to them. And like, you have a much better body than I do. But like, I just couldn't get on to it. And then I tried running and like running was great, but it just, it, it wasn't it. And I could tell. And then my friend Rory Baker sent me a link of, of Alex Honnold climbing in Yosemite. And I was like, well, that's like really scary and really cool at the same time and like so crazy unique and different that like someone's able to to do that i thought it was really cool and i didn't make the connection that maybe i should try climbing until maybe like a week or two later where like i kind of like went down this rabbit hole of like like learning about alex and like climbing and i was like hmm maybe this actually is something i should try and because i was going to san francisco state university in san francisco there's a lot of climbing gyms mm -hmm. and so i went to mission cliffs and i tried climbing and I was instantly hooked. I like got to the top of like a 510A or something and you know, I felt so accomplished because someone told me that if you do a 10A, it means like you're good. It's impressive like, your first time. Yeah, I was, That's I was really so proud. impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and like I started on the five sevens and I like got the hang of it. And you know, I'm not like a strong guy. So I think like um, I knew that I needed to use my feet instead of trying to do pull-ups and stuff. Absolutely. And so that, that one thing is I think what allowed me to do a 510B is the fact that I didn't treat climbing as pull-ups. Yeah. Um, but I got instantly addicted and then ended up trying Planet Granite as well, which is another gym in San Francisco. Um, ended up liking Planet Granite better just because of the drive along the coast up there. And also the route setting was a little bit more interesting to me and the holds were cleaner and better. I'm like slightly colorblind, which is hard to believe because I'm a photographer. Yeah, but like and you're really good with a, color and light. <laughs> yeah. But like in a gym, if it's like kind of dimly lit, and you know it's chalky and rubbery from all the black rubber shoes like it's hard to hard for me to differentiate between like blue and purple holds and planet granite had really clean holds <laughs> and so that's why i chose planet granite um and then i ended up moving in with a guy who route setted at planet granite and his name's damien he like taught me so much about technique and then also my friend garrett he climbed in high school and so he taught me a lot about technique as well and we go on trips together all the time and so in college like all of a sudden i like was living with two climbers and i was climbing at a climbing gym and i got really into it um and then that, uh, that of course brought me to the outdoors um, oh, yeah. and that's kind of like the ending of this little story i guess where like i went outdoors and of course i brought my camera because that's what i do as a photographer um, and we were doing some route at Mount Diablo with my friend Rory, the man who introduced me to climbing via the video. And um, we were in Diablo climbing with Rory, and I took some photos, and I look at the back of the camera, like at the screen, and I'm like, holy shit, that, look, like, that looks like the Cliff Bar logo. <laughs> like, that was easy. Like, I'm just shooting someone climbing. And, like, and so I was really happy about the photographs, um, and so I wanted to do it more, of course, and get better at it. And so that's what I did. Each time I went outside climbing, I was focused on climbing, but I was also focused on photographing my friends when I wasn't climbing. Um, and then that kind of brought me to getting good, I guess, from like like a... <laughs> like a I don't. I, I hate of... like saying that I'm good at what I do, but like. Well, I'll I say know. it for you. You're okay. really great at what you do. Oh, thank you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what allowed me to kind of get better at it. That's awesome. That's it's funny because I kind of fell into photography a bit of the same way. It was when I was nursing an injury. I still wanted to be out there and I wanted to climb, and I could climb a little bit, 
but I would get tired quickly, but didn't want to let anybody see it, wanted to stay tough. And so I'd pick up the camera and like, instead of saying, oh, I'm hurt and sore, like, oh, I'll just start taking photos now. And I, I never had the cliff bar moment because my photos are not that good, but like, it's like, they look decent, so I'll keep on doing this. So I definitely, like, my photo was not like the cliff bar logo itself, <laughs> yeah. but I was like, it's like it. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. So if that's like the end of the story of what brought those two things together, right? So when did it formulate into something that you are in now where you're filming free solo wins and things like Sufferfest? Sure. So in college, um, I found climbing, combined it with photography. And so I decided um, I wanted to kind of take that further and, and combine it into filmmaking. And so I listed on my profile um, for a meetup group, like this meetup.com site where like I wanted to go outside climbing. I listed that I was a filmmaker just in like the bio because I was in film school and the man who ran the San Francisco like climbing meetup group actually reached out to me directly because he noticed that I listed filmmaker and he was producing a film um, about um, people with negative addictions that found climbing and climbing became their positive addiction so you know some people were addicted to drug use or some people were alcoholics um, and so it's this really incredible film. It's still being edited right now, but it was the first film that I worked on. And um, it was just like out of the blue because, you know, Michael Duramy decided to reach out to me directly. And so the film is rockaholic. It's still being made. Um, and that was kind of my foot in the door. Um, and that was also the director of that film is Chris Alstrin, who taught me a lot about filmmaking on that project. Um, and then because I was working on that project, um, when it came to summertime, I didn't have an internship lined up. And so I reached out to Cedar Wright because Cedar Wright was on the North Face athlete team for climbing. Um, and I had watched a lot of his videos on Vimeo and I thought they were really good, but I wanted to like help him, like make a film. And you didn't know him. You just... I didn't sent know him. him an email. No, I sent him an email out of the blue, like no connection whatsoever. But like, I really looked up to him. Like he was like a hero of mine in the climbing industry and like as a filmmaker because his films were so radically different. And so I could kind of tell like it's worth at least trying. And so I spent like a week crafting this really concise, like perfect email to Cedar. <laughs> um, and I got his, I, I, like I forget how I got his email address. I think it was at the end of an article. But at the end of that article, I, I found out that he was doing a, um, a climbing trip in California. And so in the email, I was like, I'm in California and a filmmaker, like, and I love climbing and I'm trying to get into climbing filmmaking. Like, I would love to work for you. And so, like, perfectly concise email I sent off to him, like, expecting not to really hear back, but, like, you know, at least I, I tried. And he like, got a response in, like, five minutes. I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah, sweet. Like, you should call me tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, Colorado time. A like, week you put into this, and five minutes, <laughs> you probably could have just sent him, like, two lines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, like, my hero just responded to me and now I'm like, now I have to call Cedar right tomorrow. Like, holy oh, no. shit. Like, what do I say? I was like scared, but excited. And like, what did I just do? And like, <laughs> like oh man, it was, it was an exciting point. And that was <laughs> sure. Sufferfest, correct? That ended up being the Sufferfest films. Yeah. Wow. That was the first Sufferfest. Wow. So you're up there. Link in the show notes, climber or not, these Sufferfest films will blow your mind right out of your head. Sufferfest was in the Sierras. They stood in Sierras, is that right? Mm -hmm. So the nice thing about Sufferfest was I didn't actually have to do much climbing, um, which was 
which made sense because they're what they the whole premise of the Sufferfest, um, the first Sufferfest was they're connecting all of these peaks by bicycles and they're able to do that because they didn't need any gear because they just soloed everything. Yeah. And so they did all 15 14ers in California. And so I was more of like a, a cam- like an extra cameraman that would hike and follow them everywhere. But then when they soloed, you know, if I could get to the summit, I would walk around the backside or something. But for the most part, they kind of went up and did their own summits um, and filmed each other. Uh, and then they'd come down and I'd film them and I did interviews and then I helped edit the film with Cedar. And so it became this, like the first, um, first kind of film that Cedar, uh, was able to produce. Um, and then he invited me back to, uh, direct all the photography on Silverfest 2. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And it's funny to me, you say you hiked to them and would go around to the top if you could. I know several of those hikes and they're not like you're just hiking especially with camera gear they themselves are pretty tough it was incredibly i mean i was like what the what did i just get myself into (laughs) like i am not a north face sponsored athlete and i'm trying to keep up with two of them like this is ridiculous but there's one day where the first day i went up and i could only go up to ten thousand feet because they had already been on the trip for about a week they started up in chasta so i met them oh they were acclimatized at that point yeah they were acclimatized and i wasn't but also, like, they were just really fast, and I was getting worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the first day, I was like, oh, this is tough. But, like, I kind of, I kept at it, and, like, I kept on hiking with them, and, like, luckily, I didn't have to hike and climb. So that climbing film, I had really nothing to do with any of the climbing footage, but I had a lot to do with the hiking and kind of making it into more of a film rather than a video. Absolutely. Um, so that was, that was really fun, and it was eye-opening because it, it kind of made me realize that, like, my abilities and skill set and my willingness to help you know make a film was actually useful without a doubt and i think you touched on it when you said a film versus video so can you go a little deeper into that sure so like a lot of the um the previous videos that i'd seen cedar wright make um they kind of they they were very like they're were, they were very abstract i guess is the way or like kind of experimental like they're like experimental films, mm-hmm. um, which is you know its own subgenre of, of cinema. But I don't think it's very mainstream, and so I think it it helped Cedar to kind of re- like figure out how to make a little bit more of a mainstream style video, which ultimately kind of becomes more of a a structured film with interviews and story points and stuff like that. It's not more. It's not so much a documentation of a trip. Um, and so that was, that was the big distinction was like Sufferfest was very much a documentation of a trip, but there were themes that were, we were trying to portray and there were characters that were trying to, you know, actually like get people to understand and, and kind of feel inspired by, but also like things like the landscape were characters and stuff. And so like, there's just like, I think there was a lot more thought put into the filmmaking side, um, from each perspective like pre-production, production, and post that Cedar kind of just didn't really know about. Maybe he did. Like, I don't want to, I'm not trying to like say like Cedar didn't know what he's doing because like Cedar definitely knows what he's doing as a <laughs> filmmaker. But like, I definitely helped a little bit with like kind of going from videos to films. That's awesome. And I, I love the way you put it that the nature is a character and that you have these characters because a lot of the people that do, that are part of this craft are very much characters. And they come off as just very bigger than life and vocal, which they are. Um, but you are out there in this 
wonderful space and I think that that does a lot to a human and there's these hard drivers these very very type A people that get out there um, and you see them change while they're in nature um, and I capturing that is is huge so you go to Sufferfest with Alex and Cedar and you film free solo with Alex and you're with these team this team of really professional level like risk takers and you yourself are now a professional level risk taker was there a point when you're going through all this that you question is this exactly what I wanted to do when I was initially going through film school and and saw myself as a storyteller or did it just drive you further all of those risks and that reward yeah I mean it like I'm just going to bring this back to Sufferfest because Sufferfest like <clears throat> for me was that point in my career where you know Cedar really introduced me to what it means to to make a film in the outdoors because he had done it he'd made he had made a bunch of films in the outdoors and so like I he just I had this very filmmaker student kind of background to like how things should be done and like he would he would just throw that all the way he would throw all that away and just be like like I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a specific example to support what I'm trying to to say um but like he was very much like just like document in the moment and then what you get is what you get which is kind of beautiful yeah um and i had never really done that before like you know even like i had shot weddings and if something didn't look quite right i would just ask someone to do it again or something cuz like i thought that you know the cinematography was so important that it required you to kind of like insert yourself and so Cedar kind of stripped that away, and he was like, well, no, cinematography is actually not really important at all. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> and then, he, and then he, he, I mean, he showed me and explained it through Sufferfest, and it just made so much sense, because, like, he's really good at, at, at creating um, meaningful uh, stories. So Cedar, for, for Sufferfest 1, it was a, a very big turning point in my career, um, for many reasons, and one of them is Cedar Wright really took me under his wing and showed me how to make a film um, from a true documentary perspective in that I had made films before and I kind of like thought that you did takes of things and he wasn't really about that. He was more about you know really having a lot of fun and trying to document that because that's what people wanted to see. And I had never really thought about it like that. Like a film was, you know, this this kind of thing separate from reality. And Cedar kind of showed me like, no, you should throw like some things you think, like you should throw those away and just document things as they happen. And also just try to have as much fun doing it. Because like, yeah, filmmaking is a lot of work, but like you also just have to have fun making films and make fun films because that's what people want. Yeah. I remember watching some scenes from Sufferfest when I was looking to do some of the 14ers myself, some of the technical faces uh, in the Eastern Sierras, and certainly not free solo them, um, but it almost made me think that I would want to at some point, because you know they're suffering, but it looked so great while they did it. And the storyline was these two really good friends having a good time pushing the edge out in some really grueling Mother Nature. And so that is a really great thing to be capturing. And today, capturing Jordan Cannon with you was very eye-opening for me, 
when you would watch him do the climb a time or two and see where everything hit. But also, you would go do the climb and see what your beta was different. And it kind of became like you're both hanging out and then you would discuss how the shot would look. And so you're having fun doing it. And so to capture that, that feeling, I think is very unique to what you do. And does that still make its way into, I'm sure, everything you've done from that point forward with climbing and other styles of films, drawing just that kind of natural storyline out of it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, Cedar Wright taught me that pretty much, you know, have fun and document that fun. Um, and the point that you just brought up, um, I'd done that a little bit, but really what solidified that point is Jim Thornburg is a photographer that I was able to kind of work with throughout college. and A true master of the lens and stone, Jim Thornburg started when the company that would become Patagonia was still named Twinard Equipment. In fact, it's their catalog that published the first photograph that Jim ever sold, taken of climber Jim Carn in Smith Rock. If you're a SoCal climber, take a close look at the photography credits in your Bishop, J-Tree, and Bay Area guidebooks, not to mention the numerous climbing and rock and ice magazine covers. Link in the show notes. Every now and then I get to see him in the Bay Area when I'm back. But when I was in college, I, I got to go out and shoot with him a, a whole lot. And um, one thing that he taught me was it's really like if you want to take good climbing photographs, you just have to climb the routes. And I don't know if all climbing photographers really do that. And I'm not saying that I climb all the routes that I shoot. Like I'm definitely not up there with Brad Gobright, like climbing five. 513 on El Cap, like that's not, like, definitely not me, but I've climbed hard cracks. And so I understand like what he's doing. I understand like the, you know, the intricacies and why, like why something's important. Cause, um, Hey, hop on over to the show notes, the show notes, the show notes, and click the Brad Gobright link for an amazing video. You might just recognize the name of the director of photography, wink, wink, of Brad tackling two insane routes in Indian Creek, Utah. Both routes, it's worthy of note, were established by the late and truly great Hayden Kennedy. Check out the link to see Josh Wharton put up Hayden's line in Colorado's El Dorado Canyon in his honor. I think what stood out for me um, about Jim's photographs is, one, they're really, they're really landscape photographs combined with like, like this kind of like artistic like capturing of, of body movement. Um, and the way you get the body movement is of course, understanding when that body movement's going to happen. Um, but also just like to capture the body movement of a climb, uh, you can either do it reactively or what I like to do is kind of do it proactively. Like I know I'm thinking like a couple moves ahead when I'm shooting someone, like where are they going? What holds are they going to go to next? Cause that's all part of the story of the photograph. Absolutely. And so in Jim's work, you, you see the route and you see the person and you see like the landscape they're in. And it's this whole like moment that is just perfect. And so I tried to replicate that in some of my images and I found the best way to do that was to climb the route or at least know, you know, what they're up to. And so when I try to shoot someone bouldering, I don't, you know, pull out the camera and shoot them as they go up. I look at them as they climb it, you know, the first go or I'll try to climb it myself. And that allows me to realize like what the story of the route is and what the best place to shoot is. I love that. Drawing a story out of everything that you're doing. 
you've put yourself out there as this open-minded student of all these people that you respect and admire photographers cinematographers and climbers and I think it's great that you didn't come out there and say this is how it's done because this is what the book told me and I'm gonna do it this way I'm gonna remain open to these people I look up to and craft it into my art form my storytelling so how did you get all of these opportunities to to work with these people Cedar of course you emailed and reached out to him which I think is awesome just grab his email address and shoot him this beautifully crafted email um and it's it's just you said to yourself samuel i'm gonna be out here i'm gonna do these things and put myself in the situations where i can get the story get the shot meet the people um i mean a big part of it is just like i'm fairly privileged you know like i have the ability to you know go back to my mother's house during summer and write that email to cedar while like not worrying about shelter and food or you know it's like I had the ability to go home for the summer and then I was like this is kind of lame I want to do something useful <laughs> but like that privilege is what you know allowed me to do that if I had you know been working in college and like had finals and at the same time of doing finals I had to figure out what my summer job would be and applying for those while doing finals like that would have been a shit a shitstorm like I would not be I wouldn't have had the right the same opportunities and so like a little bit of it is yeah like me trying to like reach out to people based on what I want to do but a lot of it is also just like having the ability to do so because of of you know just my background and you know where I grew up you know growing up in in, in the suburbs of San Francisco like Yosemite's four hours away and like and so if I had grown up in Maine and went to college on the east coast like Yosemite's quite a bit farther <laughs> so I can't just go there on the weekends and get good at climbing and shoot people you know it's like a little bit different so like there's a lot of 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 um yeah hard work and like you know trying to get better but there's also like a lot of what I like to call like luck or magic or you know privilege you know um and I you know I feel bad for people that didn't have it the way I did <laughs> <laughs> it's incredibly beautiful that you embrace it what you were afforded in your life um but from our earlier conversations i, I kind of have to push on you that there i think there is more you brushed off the hard work a little bit more than you did the luck it felt like to me and we talked about your first month and a half in yosemite when you came out here and you were aware that tommy caldwell and alex honnold were going for the speed record and it didn't sound like anybody else was out here perhaps capturing that story and you said well if no one else is going to do it, I'll go ahead and do it. I'm not sure if it will turn into something, but I'm going to put myself out there. And that sounds a lot like hard work to me. <laughs> it's, um, <clears throat> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't my first month and a half, but it was like, you know, earlier this fall, I, I, I did come here for a month and a half. Um, so I, I, I had moved to Boulder, you know, I say moved, but that just, I drove my van to Boulder and kind of set up shop there for headquarters. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, things were kind of dry over there in terms of work. Like I was making do, I wasn't like, making money. I wasn't losing money. And, um, Yosemite season came up and I knew that, you know, my friend Jordan was going to be climbing and doing some really big projects here in the spring as well as Brad Gobright. Um, and also I knew that, um, my friend Alex going to be in the valley and he had i know he had goals of maybe freeing the nose of el cap but also he had the goal of of breaking the nose record 
because Brad Gobright and Jim Reynolds had broken his record that he had with Hans Florin. Well, hey there, friends. Just like the last episode, there's some technical climber talk happening here. Take a look at those show notes to learn more about speed climbing and what we mean when we talk about breaking the nose record. It's pretty badass stuff, so enjoy. And so, of course, he needed to take it back. Of course. And this was the season he was going to do it. So I was like, okay, I should probably be in Yosemite because I want to capture that. Um, and so I, I reached out to Sender Films, who makes all the Real Rock films along with Big Up Productions, and I, I asked them if they had any interest in um, the speed project that, with Alex and Tommy, and I, I didn't really get a super great answer, but like <laughs> I was like, well, they didn't say no, so I'm just going to go to Yosemite and see what happens, because um, I can take photos of all the stuff that's happening here, like there's always someone doing something rad. And so I came here for a month and a half without really knowing exactly what I'd get myself into. And then Alex started, you know, with the idea of breaking the nose record. And then I get a call from Zach Barr from Sender Films. He's like, hey, are you in the Valley? I'm like, yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, I kind of set it up to work out, you know. But if Zach didn't call me, then I wouldn't have shot, you know. So uh, at least I wouldn't have shot a real rock film. Yeah. And so, again, there's the luck where, like, you know, I did get the call. Yeah, but, and you were out here, and you were getting it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be in Real Rock next year? Yes, so it, wow. there, we shot it in June, and so there w- there's just not enough time to make a good film in that sure. turnaround for Real Rock when it comes out in November or whatever. And so I, I went back and edited it a bit, and it's going to come out in next year's Real Rock. Um, wow. But they're going to you know apply their editing magic with all their good editors. Like <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And so, all this very agile lifestyle, having this excellent Sprinter home base that you can use to go from Yosemite to Boulder to Utah and back, with you and Brian, how does that work out? That uh, th- is it challenging for the relationship, this lifestyle you've chosen? Um, I think it's, yeah, I, I would say it's, there's, there are challenges, but I think there's challenges in every relationship. So, like, our main challenge is the fact that it's long distance. Brian lives in New York, and I live wherever I am. (laughs) But it's also kind of beautiful, because Brian is very independent. He has a great job in in New York, and he loves to travel. And he has the opportunity to take a lot of vacation time, or time off, or work remotely. And so, just by luck and magic, you know, (laughs) this amazing person that I love has the ability to just come out, and I can either, either... go out to New York for a week and, you know, edit a bunch of photographs or films and, or he'll come to, come to wherever I am and we'll climb out of the van together. That's and, awesome. Yeah. So it, it works out. I wouldn't say it's a huge challenge, uh, cause we figured it out, but it, in the beginning of the relationship, it was like, well, you know, we don't live anywhere near each other. Like, how is this going to work? And it was extremely scary. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could fully dive into the relationship with Brian because it's like, it's it's pretty interesting because it's so unique. But um, I don't know. Did you two meet through climbing? Yeah. So I there's this there's this climbing festival called Homo Climbtastic that takes place in West Virginia each year, and I had wanted to go to it for I think two or three years, but it did never really worked out. And um, in 2017. I finally had the ability to go out to West Virginia because it worked out timing-wise. 
Um, and so I took my van out all the way, drove from San Francisco all the way to West Virginia. I was like, all right, I'm going to go like climb with my people. Cause it was kind of really sad, you know, like this whole climbing career, um, and photography career, it was working out and things were getting better. But like, in terms of like dating out of a van, like that's like pretty grim. And then like being gay and dating out of a van in the climbing community. Like, I don't, I thought I was the only gay climber. Like, I would meet people, and if I got to know them well enough, like, I'd be like, hey, like, do you know any gay climbers? And they didn't. Every single oh, time, no. no one knew any gay climbers. Like, but I have this awesome band, and I do great things. <laughs> well, it's just like, <laughs> Come I don't, on. well, it's like, people ask me, like, oh, like, do you only date climbers? I'm like, well, no, but, like, I've dated a lot, and no one ever, like, wanted to do, like, it never worked, well, I've I dated a lot, and no one really understood like my lifestyle and so i never really got to take dates further yeah yeah it's you know, not the into, standard lifestyle right living in the van and photography and so whether that's because i wasn't dating climbers like who's to say but once i you know started dating a climber what do you know it worked out <laughs> so like yeah i mean i don't know but um yeah, so you so, went to the, the the festival in west virginia mm -hmm. and how, was it how long was the festival there the festival lasted from Thursday night to Sunday. And so I showed up um, Thursday night, and I, I actually went with a friend. I picked him up in Boulder, um, and we, we went out there together. And the first night, Thursday night, we all, we're all at a pizza place. You know, it's the meet and greet. And there's a lot of people. I meet a lot of folks, and I'm kind of like, wow, like, all these people are really cool, but, like, there's this one guy oh. who's, like, super cute. <laughs> and unfortunately, like, I didn't catch his name. Like, he introduced himself once, and that's Brian, of course. That's who I'm talking about. And, like, I was, and, and at hope. the end of the night, Taylor was like, well, like, what do you think? Like, is there any, is there any like, anyone you're interested in? And we're like, yeah, but I don't know his fucking name. <laughs> but, like, he was so cool. Like he, like, he looked me in the eye and actually, like, seemed to care about me and, like, was super interested in me. And, like, I was super interested in him. And, like, it's hard to explain that, like, connection, but, like, it was there. And so for the rest of the weekend, like, I was supposed to document the homo climtastic from a you know photography perspective because that's kind of why i came there i was like this is rad like i get to meet all these cool people and like finally photograph some some lgbtq ah. <laughs> it's so hard to say that that's like, a hard off, one to off say the cup. Yeah. lgbtq climbers um yeah and so all of a sudden i realized like i just kind of wanted to hang out with this guy named brian the whole time and so that's what i ended up doing it's like every time i would photograph a lot of people but like one of those people every day would be Brian. So, like, wherever Brian was going, I would follow. And he didn't really know that. Like, on Saturday, I kind of went my own way because I was like, I, did, I didn't really want him to know because I didn't know if he liked me. Oh, no. I was, I'm so bad at, like, all that stuff. Like, one, I don't have very good gaydar. Two, I'm really bad <laughs> at flirting. And, like, thank God for Taylor. Taylor's my friend who I was with, Taylor Keating. Thank God for Taylor, because he was wingmanning me, like, so hard. And Brian, Brian was, like, so resilient. Brian didn't think I liked him either at one point. And we were both, we both, like, in reality, we both liked each other. It was so funny. So finally, like, Saturday night, um, he was sitting where you're actually sitting now in that, in that seat. And I was sitting on my bed. And people were kind of filtering in and out of the van, because I was, like, one of the only climbers with the van. 
And so people were just like always interested in the build out and like just talking and and so we, we were just chit chatting for like a couple hours Saturday night and then it was the in between moments where like kind of no one else was there. It was just Brian and I. Like we finally kind of realized that we liked each other. That's and really great. Sunday night he had to fly home because that was the end of the festival. And I was like, well, like, do you want to climb like with us for the next week? Because Taylor and I are just going to continue climbing. And he's like, well, actually, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> so he, can he canceled his flight home. Please tell me at that point you knew he liked you. I did. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I knew like Saturday night. It, like I realized that he liked me. And, um, and then Sunday night when he canceled his trip home, I was like, okay, this is legit. Um, and so that was that was magical being able to climb with someone you know i you know a week week prior i thought i was the only gay climber you know i was like i don't know if this homo clontastic thing's real i've never met another climber that's gay and yet there's a wow. festival and not only is there a festival that you can go and meet all these people but then you meet your person Mm -hmm. and um you know we we're both like pretty smart we we're like playing it safe and we didn't know exactly what to expect we we're just having some fun like getting to know each other and seeing where it would go and then two weeks after he left kentucky uh, he ended up flying to california to meet me and we climbed together out of the van because um, he was in between he was like in a gap in between two jobs and oh, wow. so uh he had a month and so we climbed out of the van all up and down california um and it was pretty good <laughs> like we got to know each other so well and like it really solidified our relationship and he didn't have a flight back home um and so like if it didn't really work out he would have left the first week but we ended up climbing it like for a full month and so we realized like okay this this will work that's and awesome we're both independent so when he goes back like i do a lot of work and get a lot of like stuff done and then so it's like kind of like whenever we're together, it's almost like we're vacationing. <laughs> but we're also working at the same time, you know? Yeah. It's like when I'm with Brian, I'm very focused on enjoying the time with Brian. And I think that's what makes it work because, like, we value our time together because we don't spend all of our time together. And then that, that actually works perfectly for both me and him. That's awesome. Yeah, so when you are together, it's just so special. And it's not routine. Mm -hmm. It's not waking up and doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. Um, one of the photos I showed people was the one of you and Brian at uh, in front of the free solo sign. I didn't. I wasn't sure if I wanted to post that photo because, like, it's such a special moment for us in our relationship. But over the course of you know my like about a year ago or or two, I put um, gay at the end of my Instagram bio, mostly just because like I wanted to be the change that I wanted to see in the climbing industry. Cause I didn't know any gay climbers. I didn't know anyone that was professionally like in the, in the, in the professional climbing world that was gay either. So I was like, well, I guess I should, you know, broadcast that fact so that maybe if someone else is looking, they'll at least be able to see someone that's like them. That's courageous. And so that's what I did. And I realized like this photo is, is really cool. And Brian said the same thing. He's like, if I saw something like this when I was a kid, like, it would be really inspirational. So I was like, okay, I guess we should post it. And so we both posted it. And even though it's like, it's a cutesy like relationship photo. Like I think it, it has a deeper meaning that a lot of people will understand if they get it. Absolutely. It's powerful to do that. And it speaks a lot to your position in the professional climbing and cinematography world as a gay man, because you have to think about that choice 
and discuss it with Brian? Do we put this out there? And how will, we, will it be received? Mm-hmm. Um, what challenges have you come up against in that journey to be out in this climbing world professionally? I mean, I wish it was more dramatic because it would be more interesting. But honestly, I've had absolutely no trouble with the fact that I've been openly gay. That's and, awesome. And, like, like going, <laughs> going back to Sufferfest 1, like, I, I kind of, like, went into that trip totally closeted again because I didn't know, you know, what professional, like, I hadn't been around professional athletes. I realized, like, maybe I shouldn't be so forthcoming with this side of me. But then Alex kind of was like pressing me on like oh do you have a girlfriend and Cedar was like yeah do you have a girlfriend like and I said like no I forget oh man I forget exactly what I said but they're like well, what does that mean and then I, I was like it's one of those moments that like as a gay person like it brought me back to you know being in the closet because I was in that moment and like having to come out and so I'm sitting there in front of my heroes like day two of Sufferfest pretty worked from hiking and then like having to come out to these two guys that were i have no idea what they're gonna say what they're gonna expect like and they fucking they were like so receptive and loving and they're like oh we don't give a shit (laughs) and like alex is like my best friend's gay i'm like oh really like and then like that exploded into this whole thing and then they like like they love to like like part of their coping mechanism is like comedic relief and kind of like downplaying things and talking shit and so like all of a sudden like my homosexuality became like a, a funny, like lighthearted kind of joke thing. And so like, there's this, there's this photo from Sufferfest too, that like, I finally got to document it happening where like Alex is pretending to like, yeah, <laughs> with Cedar. It's, and it, it's this photo. really funny photo. And they're both like, they're both like so fine with the fact cause they, they're both straight and okay with the fact that they're straight and they're filmed by a gay guy and they don't care. Like it's fun. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, that's what that's how I felt like that photo I posted that's how I felt in back in that moment when I came out and they were totally like oh not not just like it's hard to explain all of those feelings of just like utter relief when you tell someone you're gay and they don't give a shit absolutely and then they end up making it way better than you thought it would be yeah like it's it's hard to like that's like the whole it gets better campaign I urge everyone listening to check out the it gets better campaign The link is, of course, in the show notes, itgetsbetter.org. There are so many ways to get involved, to educate yourself and others. Please, take the pledge to support It Gets Better and stand up and speak out against hate and intolerance. And if you need help or know of anyone in the LGBTQ community that does, please click on the Get Help link and reach out to the Crisis Text Line, National Runaway Safe Line, Trans Lifeline, Trevor Project, or any of your local resources searchable through the website. It is unacceptable that anyone feels alone, bullied, or unworthy of love. You know, you come out and it might not be great, or it could be amazing, but then it becomes better because there's things that you wouldn't see. Like, I, don't, I wouldn't expect, you know, professional climbing athletes to have so much fun with me and, like, just fully accept that fact. Yeah. And so I'm really glad I did that. And I think it's it's been a good journey. That's awesome. There's been no negatives. Yeah. No one's been like, oh, like, I can't think of, like, how to make fun of myself for being a gay climbing photographer, but I'm sure someone could, and <laughs> they haven't, no, I've, I've never heard it, so. But that's great, and I, I think that's better than if there was some drama behind it, because it speaks so wonderfully to the climbing community. 
Um, the climbing community can be extremely judgmental, I think, based on performance. Yes. <laughs> but they don't give a shit about anything else. <laughs> this so, is like, very true. You know, like, a lot of people are like, why do you have gay on your bio? Like, who gives a shit? And I was like, exactly. But also, like, some people well, don't yeah. aren't forthcoming because they don't know. I don't think climbers really care about any of that other societal judgmental stuff because it really doesn't matter. Like, if you're climbing, you're judged on how well you can climb, which, you know, is good and bad, but I think that is kind of beautiful for someone like me who, you know, I, I thought it was such a burden, and that burden was lifted when I was, you know, embraced by the climbing community. And then I think that's also, you know, not just the advent of gyms or what popular, what is popularizing climbing, but I think that a lot of people are, you know, really attracted to the community that climbing, um, was and has become. I agree with that. I agree. I do want to back into that a little bit. You said that you felt like it was a burden. I think that's pretty deep. And if you're comfortable talking about it, did you feel like it was your burden to carry or that you were a burden because of this? Um, you know, that's a really good question and I'm not exactly sure how to elaborate on it, but as a gay man that had to, you know, come out again after publicly coming out, um, I, it's just like society kind of instilled a kind of a self-hatred of my homosexuality. Um, and I can't really... A lot, I can't really say exactly why that is. I think it's it's maybe because like I was the like one of the only gay people in my high school, um, and the other you know two gay people that I knew about in high school, I didn't feel like I fit into like with them at all, um, and so it was like this part of me that I had not only suppressed but also I felt like it was this entire it's like this big part of me that no one knew about yet it meant so much to me and so it's just this crazy kind of this this burden that I had and so I, I said the word burden again when I had to come out to Alex and Cedar because that's what it, it feels like it's like you can't just show up and be yourself you all of a sudden have to like take this burden and see how they react to it um Luckily, they reacted amazingly. Yeah. <laughs> but it is wow. like, you know, every now and then it's a burden. Like, same thing happened when I went to Morocco to film for Free Solo. Went back in the closet because you can um, I actually forget what the what the official thing is. But I remember it was something like you can be jailed for being gay or something like that. So I was like, well, I'm going to put that, you know. Article 49 of the Penal Code of Morocco criminalizes, quote, lewd or unnatural acts with an individual of the same sex, end quote. Same-sex sexual activity is illegal in Morocco and can be punished with anything from six months to three years imprisonment and a fine of 120 to 1,200 dirhams. That's about 33 to 330 USD. Put that side of me away and just, wow. like, not... So, like, there is thing Like, it's, it's not like... I live a life differently, but there's certain times and conversations where like, you know, I'll be with a porter for, you know, three weeks and I get to know him and he's really cool. And then he asks me if I have a girlfriend back home. And, you know, if I wasn't in Morocco, I'd be like, oh no, I don't have a girlfriend. Like I'm gay. And then he would learn something about me. But like in Morocco, I felt like I shouldn't have, I shouldn't do that. And so the burden, you know, all of a sudden comes back up every now and then, but... Certainly. Yeah. Well, and that was one thing that attracted me to you as far as 
wanting to reach out to you for this podcast. Not only am I a huge fan of your work and your climbing, but the fact that you do have that tag as gay climber on your Instagram profile spoke volumes to me because I understand the the self-hatred being one of a, not even a handful of, of Asians in the town I grew up in. And the others, I, I kind of distanced myself from because I didn't want to be associated as being different. And so if I'm around a group of white people, it's clear that I'm different. It's evident, but I, I wanted to try to hide it. Um, exactly. Yeah. It, and I was just so impressed that you were just saying, no, this is who I am. I'm not even going to try to hide it. I'm not going to try to get around it. I'm just going to put it out there. Mm-hmm. And that photo heals other people, the photo of you and Brian, and gives them the power to say, boy, I don't know if there are, are any other gay climbers. And they're like, oh, wait, there are. And they're doing amazing things. These guys kick ass. I kick ass too. And uh, Gay climbers have a lot of fun, I'll say. <laughs> like when you go to Homo Climbtastic, that is the f- best and most fun climbing festival you will go to. It is... It, it's, I, awesome. it's just like you can't have a bad time. Like the name Homo Climbtastic. Yeah. Like, how <laughs> fabulous is that? Like you. Well, and I've admittedly <laughs> never heard anybody talk more about loving nuts as much as you did today while we were climbing. <laughs> I always try to make that joke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to, 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 you know, whenever I meet someone new, I'm like, oh, the nut joke. I gotta, you know, make sure the nut joke came out. But people always laugh at it. So yeah. They're like, oh wait, that guy's gay, so it's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> no. So I think this is a great way to end it, man. But there's one thing I do want to ask you. This is your story, your episode. Whatever you want to say, how you want to end it, totally yours. Like I could say something about climbing or photography, but I really want to speak more to, you know, the younger audience that's listening to the podcast that might be closeted or, you know, going through something similar to what I went through in high school, you know, having to come out and having to deal with, you know, acceptance not only from other people, but being able to accept yourself. Because when I came out, I didn't realize that I, I wasn't done. You know, a lot of a lot of folks in the in the LGBTQ community have equated coming out to really actually going in, and I think that's totally true. Where like once you come out, it might be hard, but it's so worth it because it gets better and like you learn so much about yourself and there's so much love in the world that you don't know about yet and you will get to experience it and that is beautiful. Samuel, my friend, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time, for being so open and honest and willing to share your story on the Wilder Mind podcast. And listeners, if you've not done so, you must check out Free Solo, the Sufferfest film's and all of the other great content that Samuel works so hard to put out into this world. The link is in the show notes. The Wilder Mind podcast is hosted and produced by yours truly. The theme song was written by my good friend Alexis Tia. The feedback for the first episode with Jordan Cannon is so appreciated, and I cannot thank you enough for giving your time, your ear holes, and your brain to the Wilder Mind podcast. Until next time. To your wildest self, be true. On something bold, restless soul will fall out.